like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Do you watch the news? You know, I think if I was an unbeliever, I would never turn it on. I would figure the less I know, the better. Because whenever I watch the news, the, the word that flashes over and over again is insecurity. This is a day when the average person is totally insecure. Because what is the news today? Well, the lead story is war. On the front page of USA Today on Friday, it said North Korea warns that U.S. military action would lead to World War III. And we are presently in the process of shipping an estimated 200,000 soldiers to the Gulf where we anticipate that any day we're going to declare war. And then we move from that story to the story of diseases. We've got diseases that have no real cure today, like cancer and AIDS. And then on top of that, we have mosquitoes carrying West Nile disease. We, we have the military being vaccinated for smallpox because of the threat of chemical warfare. This past week, we had seven members of an Algerian extremist group that were arrested in London with the, with the deadly toxin ricin. And they said that they could take ricin and put it in our food or our drinking water or our ventilation systems and only one milligram can kill an adult in less than 48 hours. And then we move from that to crime. I heard a story the other day or a report the other day that despite all of our technology today, we have more unsolved crimes today than ever before. And the reason is that most of the crimes committed today are senseless. They have no motive to connect the person to the crime. Kind of like the, the snipers in Washington, D.C. And then we move to the economy. In December, the report is that 101,000 jobs were lost in the United States in December alone. And when you talk about the economy, the words we hear are downsizing, mergers, recession, the stock market is falling, Chapter 11, bankruptcy. You know what's interesting? Even when you get to the weather, you think the weather, you could relax, but it gets scary. And they're saying we're under a warning, we're under a threat of severe weather, take shelter immediately. And so the average guy comes home from work exhausted and he gets in his lazy boy and he turns on the news and what does he think? He thinks, I'm not very secure. And that's why Romans chapter 8 is so refreshing because it's God speaking words of security in the midst of all this shifting sand. And this chapter is so stable, it's so peaceable, it's so secure. When many people don't know what chance happening is going to occur next, verse 28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. When most people don't know if there's even going to be a tomorrow, verses 
29 and 30 tell us that we are part of God's eternal plan and purpose to foreknow us, to predestine us, to call us, to justify us, to glorify us. And no matter where I am along that plan, I know the outcome already. Now, when I was a little boy, I, whenever I read a mystery book, I always turned to the last chapter and read the last chapter first. Because then no matter what kind of problem the hero got into, I know it was going to be okay. Well, God lets us read the last chapter. And He tells us that we are destined to be like Jesus Christ. Our future is to be glorified. And Paul wants to make sure we don't miss this. And so in verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, Paul's pumped up. He's excited. He wants some feedback. He says, what do you think about this? You say, what do I think about this? Well, I don't understand this predestination stuff. And I'm really kind of struggling with this foreknowledge thing. And I don't see how God could work all things together for good, well, that's not really what Paul has in mind when he asks you this question. You see, he's not asking you to understand all the nuances of the workings of God. He simply wants you to believe it and accept it and get excited about it. And to make sure we do, Paul kind of leads us in a proper response at the end of chapter 8, a response of triumphant security. And he does so by giving us some leading questions. He gives us five rhetorical questions, and they constitute a passage here at the end of chapter 8 that commentators have referred to as a hymn of, of assurance, a triumphant song, the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. James Montgomery Boyce calls this a mountaintop paragraph. And he says, it is the Mount Everest of the letter and thus the highest peak in the highest Himalayan range of Scripture. It's like we have climbed the ascent of doctrine in the first half of this book and we have finally arrived at the summit and we get to sit down and enjoy the view. Now, Paul's going to ask us five questions. Usually, when we don't have answers to questions, it leads us to insecurity. These questions are different. The very fact that we cannot answer these questions is our security. John Stott says the apostle hurls these questions out into space, as it were, defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them, but there is no answer for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. This morning we're going to look at these five questions that make up this mountaintop paragraph. And with each unanswerable question, he establishes a foundational truth upon which our security rests. Those five truths are God's power, God's provision, God's protection, God's pardon, and God's presence. First of all, we have the security of God's power in verse 31. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, some of us need to underline that little phrase, God is for us, because that's a truth we need to grasp. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable 
He said, in a certain city there was a judge, and he was crooked through and through. He had no fear of God, and he had no respect for mankind. He doesn't care what God thinks. He doesn't care what man feels. He is a compassionless, crooked judge. And then he says, in that same city, there was a powerless, penniless widow. She's being harassed by someone. And so she comes to the judge to seek protection and intervention from him. But the crooked judge doesn't care. And so he laughs her out of his courtroom. But she evaluates her situation and she realizes he is the only one who can solve my problem. And so since I don't have any money and I don't have any connections and I don't have any relationship to anybody in power, much less this judge, I'm going to do the only thing I can do. And that is I'm going to pester this judge. She says, I'm going to be in his face every time he turns around. So ultimately, he's going to either have to assist me or execute me. And that's exactly what she does until finally the judge just raises his hands and cries out and says, fix this woman's problem. I don't even care what it is. Just fix it and get her out of my face. Now, that's the parable. You say, well, what is the moral of that parable? You say, well, I guess the moral is it pays to pester. I guess what, what he's saying is that whenever I have a problem that only God, God can solve... And I come to God and I discern that he's reluctant and compassionless and insensitive. Then I need to pray a little longer and pray a little harder and pester him and bother him and be in his face. And maybe ultimately I can wear him down and wrench a blessing out of his tight-fisted hands. Is that the point of the parable? No, not at all. In fact, what's interesting about this parable, this parable is not an analogy. It's really a contrast, a study in contrast, because God is totally unlike that crooked, compassionless judge. In fact, if you read that parable, at the end he says that God acts in justice and God acts speedily. God is not crooked, he is just, and God is not withholding, he is speedily wanting to meet your needs. So God is totally unlike the crooked judge, and you and I are totally unlike the widow, because the widow didn't have a relationship with the judge. For the judge, she was just like a computer printout, printout just a face among many faces, just a number to him. But you and I are related to God. And that's what Romans chapter 8 tells us. We are sons of God. We are in his family. Earlier it says we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And so we don't pray to a compassionless, insensitive, tight-fisted God. See, when I pray, I don't say I'm going to the quarry and I'm going to hammer on the rocks. I'm going to slam my fist against a wall and hope to make some dents. No. You see, God is looking at you as his child. And he's asking, what can I do for you? I am tender toward you. I am compassion 
towards you. I am caring towards you. And that's what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 8. God is for us. Romans chapter 8 has told us He delivered us from the law of sin and death. He renewed us by His Spirit. He made us His children. He made us His heirs. He predestined us to holiness and glory. God is for us. And the question is, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now that doesn't mean there's no opposition. When God is for you, you will have a lot of opposition. In fact, notice something. The opposition is personal. He doesn't say what. He says who can be against us. You have lots of enemies. Your primary enemy is the devil. But when God is for us, all of those enemies just fade off the scene. See, it's like if I said, right after church, we're going to go over to the gym and we're going to play some two-on-two basketball. And Michael Jordan just showed up and he's going to be on your team. You say, well, who are we going to play? Who cares? See, you and Michael Jordan can beat any two people in this auditorium. And that's the point here. One plus God is a majority. So if God is for us, who cares who's against us? And that's the security of God's power. The second question gives us the security of God's provision, and that's in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You say, well, I realize God is for me in the big things of life. But what about the little things of life? Does God really care about my job? Does God really care about my family? Does God really care about my financial needs? Does God really care about my physical problems? Can I be secure in the fact that God will provide all the things that I need? Well, that's the question Paul asks in this verse. But he doesn't ask it like this. He doesn't say, will God freely give us all things? Because if he asks the question that way, we might not be so confident to answer. Because I think a lot of us have the idea that God has some limits on his grace and God has some limits on his generosity. But see, Paul doesn't give you that out. Because notice how he asks the question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? You see, there is no answer to that question. And what he's doing is he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if God already gave you the greatest thing that he could give you, his son sacrificed on the cross, then what will he ever withhold from you? Let's say I went out and bought you a brand new Hummer H1. That's the biggest, most expensive SUV you can buy. I buy it for you, I say, here are the keys. You say, thanks a lot, Dan. Can I sit in it? No, 
course you can sit. I gave you the Hummer. You can sit. Can I drive it? Of course you can drive it. You say, well, Dan, I've always wanted one of those little remote mirrors. You know, I hate rolling down the window and reaching out there and adjusting. You think it's possible that I could get one of those remote mirrors on it? You know what I would say to you? I'd say, look, I didn't buy you a Vega. If, if I'm going to spend over $100,000 on a vehicle, you can bet it's got power mirrors, it's got power everything, it's got all the bells and whistles. You see, if I'm going to pay that much, you can be sure you're going to get it all. And that's exactly what God has done. You see, if you ever have any question about God's generosity, if you ever have any question about God's provision for you, Paul says, just look at the cross. If he paid that much, what's he going to hold back? You see, that is the security of God's provision. And then the third question deals with the security of God's protection in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, if the question stopped right there, we could think of a lot of answers because there are a lot of people that want to put you down, to accuse you, to criticize you for being a Christian. And some of that criticism is valid. If he's a Christian, why does he do this? If he's a Christian, why doesn't he do that? We have a lot of accusers. And our chief accuser is the devil. In fact, the devil, the name devil means accuser. And Revelation 12.10 says he accuses us before God night and day. Night and day. You are being accused before God by the devil. But you know what? None of those charges carries any weight. Because Paul adds at the end of verse 33, God is the one who justifies. And we've learned in the book of Romans that word justifies means to declare righteous. God has declared me righteous. So the question is, if God says I'm righteous, who's going to say I'm not? There's a great illustration of this in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest in that day, is standing before the Lord, and he's got on filthy garments representing his sin. And Satan is standing there accusing Joshua. And he's saying to the Lord, he's not fit to be here. He's a sinner. What right does he have to stand in your presence? And the Lord turns and he rebukes the devil. And he says, he is a brand plucked from the fire. And then he has the filthy garments taken off of Joshua and in their place he gets a festal robe and a clean turban and that's a beautiful picture of what God has done for you and me he plucks us out of the fire he takes off our sinful garments and he clothes us in his righteousness he justifies us and Paul says if God has justified you then who's going to contradict him? 
You see, that's the security of God's protection. And then the fourth question shows us the security of God's pardon in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Now, accusing is one thing. Condemning is another. To accuse someone, you simply have to be a witness. But to condemn someone, you have to be the judge. And there's only one person in this universe who has the authority to condemn. Jesus said in John 5, 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ is the only person who can condemn you. And you know what he's doing? Look at the rest of verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The only one who can condemn us died, rose, ascended, and intercedes for us. His death was the ground of our justification. His death removed our condemnation. That's why this chapter began with these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died, he rose, the evidence that God accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. He's now at the right hand of God. He's in the place of power. He's in the place where a judge would sit. But what's he doing? Is he condemning you? No, he says he is interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's doing the same thing the Holy Spirit is doing in verse 26. He is an advocate on our behalf before the Father. You know, the New Testament accents this truth with a very vivid image, and we we really capture it in in the Greek word paraclete. Paraclete literally means one who is called alongside to help. And it's a word that was used in the legal realm for an advocate or a defense attorney. Jesus used this word of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 7. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away because the advocate will come. The defense lawyer will come, the Holy Spirit. John uses this word of Jesus in 1 John 2, 1. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what does that tell me? That tells me that in the divine law firm, there are two branches. There's a heavenly office and there's an earthly office. On earth, the Holy Spirit is defending me. In heaven, the Lord Jesus is defending me. Now, that's pretty solid stuff. You put that together and the judge is Jesus. He died for me and paid my penalty. My defense attorney is the Holy Spirit while I'm here on earth, and Jesus Christ in heaven in the presence of the Father. And so Paul asks the question, who is going to condemn me? And the silence after that question is the security of God's pardon. And then the fifth question gives us the security of God's presence In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the love of Christ here refers to Christ's love for us. 
And that's clear when we get down to verse 37 where he says at the end, through him who loved us. So the question here is, who shall separate us from God's love? Now sometimes Christians can be accused of being unrealistic and sometimes we're guilty of that. Sometimes we ask questions and we don't really evaluate the answers very carefully. But you can't accuse Paul of that here. He's not closing his eyes and sticking his head in the sand. On the contrary, he asks this question and then he opens his arms and invites all comers to come forward. In fact, he says, let's see if we can find an answer to this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, how about tribulation? That word tribulation literally means pressure. You ever experienced pressure? Maybe you're experiencing pressure right now. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you just lost your job or lost your spouse or lost a family member or you're undergoing a severe illness. You're feeling the pressure of that tribulation. Paul says, can that separate us from Christ's love? How about distress? That's a word that literally means a narrow space. That's a pretty vivid picture. Have you ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you feel like you're in a narrow space and you can't get out? How about persecution? That's when someone is pursuing you with the intent of doing harm. And the Bible tells us every Christian has opposition and enemies. It may be as subtle as somebody shunning me or as outright as someone attacking me. He says, how about famine? Now, most people in the ancient world experienced famine from time to time. It could result from a lack of rain or a failure of crops or from natural disasters like fires or floods or even from war. Famine. And then he says, how about nakedness? That's that's when you have poverty so severe that you don't have adequate clothing. And then he says, well, how about peril? That word means danger, the threat of physical harm. You know, Paul used this same word eight times in one verse in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, describing his own life's experiences. He says, I was in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. And then he adds finally, how about the sword? And that's when the danger becomes a reality. That's when it's not just a threat of death, but actually death itself. Now, what I like about Paul is that Paul is not an armchair theologian. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll find that he has already experienced six of the seven things he lists here. And the seventh one, the sword, is soon going to be the means of his death. And Paul lets us know that he is not unique among Christians. Notice verse 36. For as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from 
Psalm 44, 22. And what he's saying is, these are the things that have always accompanied the people of God. From the very beginning of the church, it was evident by the martyrdom of Stephen and by the martyrdom of James. And even today, mission organizations report that worldwide as many as 600,000 Christians are killed every year for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, do these things separate us from Christ's love? And Paul helps us with the answer in verse 37 where he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Not only do these things not separate us, but in the midst of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Now, that's made up of two Greek words. One, one you know, that's Nike. We talk about the Nike missile. We wear Nike tennis shoes. That word means conqueror. The other word is a word, kuper, which means more than or super. And so he says we are Nike. We are super conquerors. Now that's an interesting image because if you look at verse 36, he says, to the world we look like sheep about to be slaughtered. But in reality, we are super conquerors. That's an interesting image. A conquering sheep. Can you imagine that? I mean, if God was going to pick an animal that would conquer, you would think he would pick a lion or a bear or a bull or a gorilla. But you know, in God's economy, the most powerful animal is a sheep waiting to be slaughtered. Because you see, in God's economy, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I humble myself, then I am exalted. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.11, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, trials and persecutions, rather than separating us from Him and His love, actually manifest the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We are super conquerors. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing. George Matheson was a Scottish minister in the 19th century. As a young man, he lost his eyesight. And then to compound his pain, his fiancée left him as a result of his blindness. All alone in his room on June 6, 1882, with a broken heart, he sat down and wrote these words. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. 
O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? George Matheson could say, no one and nothing. And then Paul gives a similar testimony himself in verses 38 and 39. Verse 38 says, for I am convinced. Now notice that's in the first person. Paul hasn't spoken this way since verse 18. This is personal. Paul says, I am convinced. And what is Paul convinced of? He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then to demonstrate that, he lists possible separators that he can think of, and then he scratches every one of them off. And he gives them to us in couples for the most part. He says in verse 38 that neither death nor life. Death is the greatest separator. I mean, death literally separates us from life. It separates us from the places we love and the people we love. It literally separates our spirit from our body. But Paul says it can't separate us from the love of God. And then he adds in contrast to that life. And that may seem like a strange thing to say at first, but you know, when you think about it, sometimes life can be more cruel than death. And that's why sometimes we pray for death and we call death a mercy because it delivers us from some intense pain in life. But Paul is saying no misery in life can separate us from the love of God. And then he moves on to nor angels nor principalities. Those are two words for angels. I assume the first one he's talking about is good angels. The second one he's talking about is fallen angels or demons. And what he's saying is there are no superhuman beings in the universe that can separate you from God's love. In 2 Kings 19, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. But Paul says, with all their power, they cannot separate you. And then he adds in verse 38, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing that exists now and nothing that will exist, nothing in this life and nothing in the life to come, nothing here and nothing hereafter can separate us from the love of God. And then he adds at the end of verse 38, nor powers. And that's a Greek word, dynamis, from which we get our word dynamite. It's usually used of miraculous, supernatural miracles. And so what Paul is simply saying here is that no miraculous power that exists can separate you from the love of God. And then verse 39, he says, nor height, nor depth. Nothing above us and nothing below us. Nothing in heaven and nothing in hell 
can separate us from the love of God. David captured this same thought in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And then last of all, in case he's forgotten anything, Paul adds in verse 39, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you got the message. You and Christ are inseparable. Paul asks five unanswerable questions. Who's against us? No one. Who could keep God from giving us all things? No one. Who can bring a charge against us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. And so in closing, I take you back to the question Paul asks at the beginning of this paragraph. What shall we say to these things? Or let's make it personal. What do you say? to these things. And I trust that you can say with Paul in verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I trust that this is your song of triumph. And I trust that next time you watch the news, you watch it with unshakable security in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that speaks so triumphantly of all that you've done in our lives through grace. And Father, we can only humbly lift our voices to you and say thank you for the blessings you've laid in our laps. And Father, we just worship you today for all you've given us that, that you've provided us not just with all these blessings, but, Father, you have provided us with the security of knowing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And, Father, today we rest in that security and we go from here with a fresh desire to walk faithfully with you and to bring others to know you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.